Well, guys, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter, where are we, 6? And uh, we're going to continue on going verse by verse. It really has slowed down over the past uh, few weeks because we've been going, um, not even verse by verse, we've been going kind of phrase by phrase through the armor of the Lord, but it's been so very, very fruitful. Uh, I was talking to a, a brother today, can I tell him this? Chris, can I tell him what you told me? All right, he's, he's like, thanks for, thanks for making it simple for, what'd you say? For the thick, thick-minded people. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was really funny because I, I have been studying these um, armors of the Lord and, and making the applications kind of in my own life of have I been applying them, have I been walking in them, and what does it mean to walk in them, and that's how I've kind of developed this, um, this way that we've been looking at it, where uh, how do you put on the boots of peace while well, you stand firm with the Lord, and how do you put on the belt of truth, you read the Bible. I need to think about things that way because I'm a very simple guy, and I don't like complex things, and so uh, that's, I found that funny because I really felt like it was um, just kind of who I am. I just want things to be simple. I was talking to another guy today about Warren Wiersbe, who writes commentaries on books of the Bible, and I was telling him that Warren Wiersbe is really gifted at making complex things really simple. And so if you're looking for a great commentary, of uh, a simple commentary of how to uh, understand a book of the Bible, a whole theme of a book, man, those Warren Wiersbe commentaries are amazing. And then, um, so yeah, I want things to be simple. I want things to be awesome for us. So let's, um, I, have a, I have a prop. Hang on. So to, well, let me read our first scripture here and pray, and then I'll, and I'll get a prop that I just want to hold the entire sermon. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, God, the, the sword of the spirit that we're going to talk about today. And, and I pray that, God, that you would, by your spirit, make whatever words are said right now impactful and powerful and, and sharper than any two-edged sword in our hearts. God, that you would bring us up and help us understand, Lord, that in this battle, in this war that we're fighting in this world, Lord, you have equipped us so wonderfully, and we have such power at our disposal. And I, I pray that we would be encouraged and we would be sent out of here like, uh, like an army of, of godly warriors. And uh, Lord, we pray for all the distractions in our life and all the things that we're going through, maybe tough times, maybe uh, challenges at work or home or marriages or kids or anything, God. Uh, yes, those, those are in our life, but God, they do not define our life. Our life is about you and about hearing your word. And Lord, we pray that it would be uh, your word that speaks powerfully into our hearts and into our lives today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the verse we're looking at today is Ephesians 6, 17. It says, and take the helmet of salvation, which we talked about last week, keeping your mind focused on Jesus, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so hang on one second. I got to grab this here. Wah! Ha! That's right. That's right. So, I, you know, we have people in our church that just have this at their house. And they brought it for me today. Now, I don't know. I, we probably have multiple, considering how nerdy our church is. But um, I'm just going gonna, gonna to keep it right here just because that's awesome. I kind of want to hold it the whole time, but I'm afraid I might swing it and damage something. <laughs> All right. So nothing feels better to a young man than a fresh blade grasped in his hand, just like that, you know, just feeling it. There's just a feeling of power. There's a feeling of, of wonder. And I think all little boys, and I have six of these little boys, and if I were to take this home, you know what would happen? They would all just be freaking out. They would be like, oh my gosh, can I see the sword? Can I touch the sword? What can I hit with the sword? And can I sharpen it a little bit? And they, you know, it would be just the hit of the century, better than any video game. All right. And so there's just something, it's like a coming of age. It's, it's like you feel power, you feel responsibility and honor. You know, it's been the tool for armies and soldiers for centuries, if you think about it. You know, it's only been very recently that the sword has been replaced by the gun as the way that kingdoms are overthrown 
and, and uh, enemies are defeated. So, so this is really a, a very historically accurate or um, historically important object. And it's here in the Bible, and so we need to study and understand why God uses the sword as a picture of his word in our lives. So having a sword in your hand makes you someone to be reckoned with. If you're walking down the street with a sword in your hand, people will notice you. You may, in this day and age, you may have some police called on you, or you, you, it might be kind of crazy, but you will be reckoned with. You will. Um, and it makes you, it gives you an ability to be useful to your captain. If you're in the army, they will give you a gun. You know, even, even the guys, uh, the IT guys in the computer rooms, they still are taught how to use guns, and they're given guns if they're over in Iraq right now or whatever. They, they have that. And so it makes you useful to your captain. In our last five weeks, we've seen how God has equipped us, his children, with every piece of armor needed to defend against Satan attacks. We learned about the belt of truth, how, how we have to be guarded from Satan's lies, and how we put that on by reading, being in the Word of God and, and reading the Word of God so that we can identify truth clearly. And then we've learned about the breastplate of righteousness, how we need to be protected from emotional attacks. The breastplate protects the heart, which is where your emotions come from. Satan is really good at making you feel bad about your sin. And it, and it, and it just it causes you to just fall to your knees and be useless as a warrior. And so God gives us a protection against that. And he says, it's not my righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ. He just gives that to us. And we can say, you know what, I am a sinner, but that's okay because Jesus cleanses me, fixes me up. Then we learned about the boots of the gospel of peace, how we can stand firm if we're standing in relationship with the Lord. We learned about the shield of faith, how we can defend against every attack because we can have faith that God is behind our life and he is working in our life. And we, we've studied those things in depth. And then last week we looked at the helmet of salvation. And all these things are designed to protect you from every single one of Satan's attacks, you know, Satan's schemes to debilitate you. Because uh, remember, Satan is concerned about your usefulness in this war. He understands that maybe you believe in Jesus right now, maybe you're a Christian, and so he's lost you for eternity. He knows that you're going to go to heaven, and he's, he comes to grips with that, but he wants you to be as useless and futile as possible in this world. And so he is going to continually bring attacks into your life, continually. There's this war raging going on for souls, and it's all invisible. Yet we see the repercussions of it uh, every day, don't we? We see it in the casualties, in broken lives with no hope. You know, people who used to be walking with the Lord who are now just despondent and depressed and are not pursuing God like they once were. We see it in the bodies laying around in the unchurched masses that fill our city right now. Satan has attacked and his lies have mercilessly killed many hearts and souls. But not us. And this is why this, this message today is really exciting. Not the children of God. We are surely in this war, but we are not just bystanders. We're not watching it unfold before us. We are in it. We are the knights. Like you picture the knights of the round table with their armor and their swords. That's us. You know, we're the William Wallaces. If you've seen Braveheart, you know how, what a, you know, he was there for the battle. He wasn't a bystander. He was running down the, the, you know, towards the enemy and all his people are like, I guess we should run too. And they're coming off behind him and he was just all about going into the battle. That's us. You know, we're the the three musketeers, we're the Luke Skywalkers further back. We're the Inigo Montoyas or the farm boy Wesleys. We make Satan back up in fear when we brandish our sword. When we say, you know what? Not today. Not today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run, and I'm going to run straight forward with the Word of God, and I'm going to attack Satan. And he's been attacking all these people around me. Not today. Not today. The Word of God is what we're talking about. 
using the Word of God, being skillful in the Word of God. And this is one part of our equipment that God has given us that can be both defensive and offensive. Everything else is just defense, but this one can be defensive. You know, we can ward off attacks from Satan by quoting Scripture, and this is really illustrated for us when Jesus was in the, te- the desert being tempted, isn't it? And he went through and Satan came and Satan would tempt him with the world, the flesh, and the devil, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the, uh, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And, and Satan was coming and just attacking him. And what did Jesus do? Every time he picked up his sword and he went, ching. You know, I, that was a terrible whatever. But he, he did it. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy to him. And he was just like, boom, here, and, and Satan's like, ah, that's not going to work. And so Jesus, he illustrated for us how we can be defensive. And so there's that, but we're not going to really talk a lot about that today. I, I know a lot of people will spend an entire sermon on that. We've done that before through when we were in the book of Genesis and some other things. We'll do that another time. But today I really want to speak about the offensive uses of the Word of God. We should be on attack. We should be like William Wallace running down the hill, using the word of God to come against the devil and the flesh. We're talking about the devil first. So these are the two ways we're going to be attacking evil today, the devil and the flesh. And the world too, it's kind of mixed in there too, but we're going to kind of divide it into these two. So first, the devil. Our God is at war. He's at war with the the world, the flesh, and the devil Uh, He doesn't want them to take people to hell, and so we're going to go right after him. And so the cool thing is we are going to be victorious in this war, and he has enlisted us as his soldiers, and so we're supposed to fight with the word of God. We are supposed to fight. We are not supposed to compromise. We're not supposed to try to make a deal with the enemy. God has no interest in negotiating peace with his enemy through political means. And I'm sure your mind is racing right now, and as you think about our world today and all the different challenges of the world today, it seems like there is an urgency to try to negotiate or through political means or through voting or through all these different things to try to legislate righteousness in our world, in our country. And God would say, it's not going to work. That does not work. You can't tell someone, be righteous. They can only be righteous through obedience to God's word. And so I'd rather stand on this side and be, no, I'm going to fight with God's word. I'm going to say God's word says this. That's why I believe it. You know, you have really controversial issues like gay marriage and, and all kinds of other things that are out there in the world right now. And people in the church are trying to figure out ways to try to convince people of our point of view. And I feel like God is saying, why are you doing that? I don't need peace negotiators. I have the word of God. The word of God says this. So that's what I believe. It's not unloving. It's true. And I'm going to continue to go that direction. Satan is evil, and his evil must be destroyed. His evil power must be broken. He is only there to steal, kill, and destroy. And we got to know this. There's no reforming him. There's no reforming the evil in this world. We are not reformation people. And I'm not talking about the reformation of the church in the 1700s. I'm talking about reformation of this world does not come through the church. Death of this world and new life comes through the church. It's two different things. Two totally different things. We are not going to reform this world. There's no peace treaties. It's to the death, this battle. You know, Satan is like, he's like the evil emperor from Star Wars. He's like Sauron from Lord of the Rings. He's the Joker. He's the Wicked Witch of the West and the Shark from Jaws. He's the Hunter from Bambi and Biff from Back to the Future, all rolled into one. He cannot be reasoned with, and he cannot be avoided. But some believers in in the church, in our world, have no interest in getting involved in this battle in picking up the word of God and going to war. They keep their sword in their belt and their mouth shut. 
When they should be shouting the truths of God's word, they shrink back in silence. But we are not going to be silent. We're to swing away, as it instructs us in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2, when he says, And he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and he made me a polished shaft, and in his quiver he has hidden me. That author, he's saying, God has given me a mouth so that I can fight in this war. He's given me a mouth so that I can speak the Bible into people's lives. Our words can become powerful when we speak the word of God. Why? Why did they become powerful? Not only against Satan, and you know, we can, we can, go, we can talk about how we come against Satan all the time, uh, but specifically against the flesh of people. I want to show you a couple verses that, that show us why the Bible is the sword that comes out of our mouth as well, okay? So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So why should we speak the word of God? Because it works. It works. It can make the heart of men bleed. I can remember many times sitting in church and hearing a message and feeling the burning in my heart when I realized how I had offended God or, or, or had rejected his love or denied his grace or just something that the pastor said, something that the word of God said. Maybe it even wasn't what the pastor was talking about, but he read it and to me immediately my heart knew that God said that to me. And I'm sure many of you have experienced the same thing, right? You've been just sitting there in church, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, conviction. Wow, how does that happen? It's because it's powerful. It's his word. It's living and active. I hated that. I ran from it, like many believers do. And you just maybe numb yourself to it, or you try to think about something else, or just daydream during the, during the sermon. Spurgeon, in 1881, he taught it like this. this. That sword pursued you and pierced you in the secret of your soul and made you bleed in a thousand places. At last you were pricked in the heart, which is far better than being cut to the heart. And then execution was done, indeed. The wound was deadly and none and none but he that killed could make you alive. Do you recollect how after this your sins were slain one after another? Their necks were laid on the block and the spirit acted as an executioner with his sword. After that, blessed be God, your fears and doubts and despair and unbelief were also hacked to pieces by this same sword. The word that gave you life but it was at the first a great killer. Your soul was like the battlefield after a great fight under the first operations of the divine spirit whose sword runneth not empty from the conflict. Spurgeon was, uh, who even writes like that? That's amazing description of the sword of the spirit. So speaking the word into someone's life or even hearing the word spoken into your life is swinging the sword of the Spirit. It's just swinging away. It's going right in. But the cool, cool thing is, is it's not dependent on how skillfully you speak. It's a, it's a spiritual sword. It does its work invisibly and internally, yet powerfully. People will be affected. The Spirit will call people to repent through hearing the Word. As in Acts 2.37. And in Acts 2.37, he says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Don't you wish people would respond to your words like that? Don't you wish you had that kind of influence where you just would speak and they would say, 
they would be touched to the heart and broken and say, what do I do? What do I do to get what you have? Because obviously there's something in you that has just cut me to my heart. And that's the power of the Word of God. It's amazing. It's able to cut to the heart when nothing else can. You may have a thousand layers of armor over your heart, but the sword of the Spirit can cut through them all like a hot knife through butter. And no man can defend or counter it. It will return from the battle for the blood it was sent for. Whoa. Which is what is meant in Isaiah when Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing that I sent it for. Man, the word of God. If you speak the word of God, you will not fail. You cannot fail. And that doesn't mean everyone's going to like you. Why? Because the words you say cut them to the heart. No one likes to be cut to the heart. But it may save them. It may save them. So why is the Bible so effective? Why does the word of God bring people to their knees in repentance? Why can we confidently wield this sword around? Because it's his word. You can do a little play on words and write his word and just say H-I-S-W-O-R-D and it's spell his sword too. It's crazy. English is awesome that way. But we don't have to aim for the heart because Jesus is still controlling it. He's aiming it for us. The Bible is a way that the Holy Spirit works in hearts. So you just give people the word of God and he takes that and he aims it at their heart and it convicts them. This wonderful book contains all of God's revelation to man. Nothing is left out. All of what he wanted to be represented to men is contained in its pages. All, and, and God is committed to use it in a supernatural and powerful way in our lives and out of our mouths. He is committed to that. <clears throat> so, Let's look real quick at how Jesus illustrates and defines for us and, and pictures for us the use of the Word of God. How are we supposed to use it, okay? Because I, can, I, can, I bet you're thinking, all right, so I believe that the Word, but how do I get the Word from my bookshelf into the heart of my boss or my neighbor or my wife or my friend or my enemy? How do I get it from there to there? How does that happen? And of course, the answer is you read it yourself. You internalize it yourself, and then you just let what's in your heart come out, okay? But let's see how Jesus illustrates it for us. In, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, we're going to see a few verses from Revelation. It just reveals for us, funny how the book is called Revelation, because it does a wonderful job revealing to us some many truths. And the first one is, is in Revelation 1.16. It's showing a picture of Jesus, what Jesus really looks like up in heaven. And it says, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. You think you know what Jesus looks like. I ask you the question, what does Jesus look like? And what's the first thing you think of? White guy with curly hair, with a beard. But that's not what he looks like. He looks like this right now, as bright as the sun shining in his strength. And once again, it's his word. It's his word coming out of his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword. It's his word. There, there's no need for anyone else's word. We don't need another book. We don't need anything else. You don't need the Book of Mormon. You don't need the Pearl of Great Price. You don't need any book in a Christian bookstore. You don't need any of them. None of them. Now, there's good ones that can bring illumination, but this is what all of them are telling you to read, if they're good ones. They're telling you to read this. Why? Because it's his word. There's no need for anyone else. There's no need for a backup plan. What if the Bible doesn't have the thing that'll help me? No, that's not true. It will. It works for your life. Why? Because it works for everyone's life. It is the book that works. There's no need for a backup plan. There's no need for compromise in saying the word of God is somehow incomplete. The word of God is somehow not what I need today because you're wrong. It is what you need today. 
but I can't just see how it's what I need today. I don't care. It is what you need today. And I can't figure that out, but it's true nonetheless. It's absolutely true. The Word of God, it's what we need. We don't need to compromise that. And he says here, not only is it his word coming out of his mouth, but it's a sharp sword. It's not dull. It's not dull. It doesn't carry idle threats. When it says something, it will come to pass. It's dangerous. It is dangerous to just be in this every day. It's dangerous to the soul. Do not think that you won't be searched out or cut as well when you start to handle the sword of the Spirit. It will do just as good a job of slicing through your heart as it does slicing through everyone else's. But do we treat it like a toy? Like something we only give our spare time to? Like something that Sunday comes by and I got to look around the house for my Bible because I have no idea where it's at? Or do we treat it how it, how it truly is? Do we understand that this is the most important thing in your life, in your home, in your marriage, in your career? It's this. I like back in the day when they had like a family Bible and it was on their, their table and it was a big one. I was doing some studying on some genealogy for my family this week and I found out that there's like a Rensel family Bible and it's in the, it, it like had this big genealogy thing for my family and like Henry Rensel came over on like 1760 or something, came over to America and, and they were big out in the east and and we found out all this information. There's, there's this big rental family Bible in the Georgetown University Museum of Antiquities or something like that. And it's got a bunch of stuff from my family. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. I found that out this week. And I, I like that they had this big Bible that would be passed down through the family. And it just makes me think, man, they, they had a, a, a knowledge that the Word of God was, was important um, and was vital to their family. I like that. So we move to the next page in Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, and we see Jesus saying, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Hmm. His sword, the Bible, is against pride. It is fighting against pride. His sword is against those who pridefully refuse to repent. That's how, where you're going to see the blood really flow when the sword of the Spirit is pulled out. I don't want to be fighting against this sharp, two-edged sword of the Spirit. I need to be humble and myself, and I need to be repenting of my sin. And when I'm picking up the Bible every day, you know what? It convicts me of sin, and it makes me want to repent. I want to repent because I don't want to be cut all the time. I don't want to have to be cut every single time I pick it up. I don't have to be cut. I can actually choose to repent. And then look in a couple verses later, Revelation 2, 23. He says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Wow, Jesus is getting kind of graphic here. He's saying, I'm searching the hearts and the minds, but not only that, my word is killing people. I'm knocking fools out. He says, if you do not repent, if I do not repent, this sword makes sure that I am unfruitful. I will kill her children with death, it says. It will make sure that I, pride is such a killer. It's such a killer to families. It's such a killer to relationships. Pride is what brings me into a place of battling with God. And I will not win that battle. The sword of the Spirit will cut me up if I'm going to be prideful. Just like James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Resists means he's going to fight against you. You can be on his side or you can be against him. The Bible is so effective because it can determine if you are humble or prideful when nothing else can. The Bible is so effective because it can determine if you're humble or prideful. Just by reading it, the condition of your heart becomes clear. Just by reading it. 
Then you're left with a choice. After the word reveals your heart and your cut and your bleeding, you can choose to repent or to rebel. That's your choice. You can run to Jesus or away. You can submit to God or submit to Satan. You can raise your white flag and surrender or fight on in your flesh. And people think sometimes that God is joking. People think that Jesus is just this meek and mild guy and he won't call them out on their sin. People think that the Word of God, the Bible, is just a book. And oh, how they are wrong. It's a book that brings salvation to some, saves them from their sin by trusting the words of this book and the God who speaks this book, who values the words in this book greater than his own name. But it also brings death and judgment and destruction to multitudes more who reject the grace of God. I think I posted on Facebook with this week, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts them itself. Men reject the Bible because it contradicts them. It disagrees with them. It judges them. People think they judge the Bible. Let me see if this is really all that is cracked up to be. Let me see if there's truths or there's lies or whatever. And it's backwards. The Bible judges them. The Bible says, you're wrong. You need to repent. You need to come to Jesus and ask for his grace. In Exodus 15.3, it says, The Lord is a man of war. Love that. So manly. I bet he paints half his face blue and has hair everywhere. He brings the pain. He's a warrior with his mouth. And you need to be on his good side now and when the end comes, of course. But I struggle because I can't hardly imagine Jesus being a warrior. I can't hardly imagine Jesus being like uh, this fighter and blood and guts and all this stuff. It's hard for me to think about him that way because I, I study, you know, the Gospels and I see his absolute love and his total grace, and his gentleness, that is meekness, that is beyond description. But let's look at what he looks like in the end. Let's look. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and let's take a look at this, this picture, this illustration of Jesus in the end. Because it changes how I see him. It changes how I view him. And instead of getting this false view that he's just a meek and mild hippie riding a, a VW bus and, and going to, you know, whatever. I don't even know what I'm saying. But instead of having that view of Jesus that's just okay with everything, and he's not calling people out and they're saying, I want to see what the truth is about him. And so I look at Revelation 19. This is what he looks like in the end. Now, I saw heaven opened, which if we saw heaven open now, this is the view we'd have. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. So this is Jesus here. He's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So the time of his, his graciousness and his mercy and his love and all of that is kind of over. Now he needs to be faithful and true to this other side of, his, of, of who he is. It says, verse 12, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. So you're starting to get the picture? Eyes burning, you know? Many crowns on his head. I don't even know what that looks like, but all, a whole bunch of them. Not like he has a big head, but he's just got cool crowns up there. And he had a name written which no one knows except himself. I don't even know what that means. But it's awesome. He's like, I got a name. You don't even know. It's like, wow, how awesome are you? You don't even know how awesome I am. Verse 13. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name was called the Word of God. And the arm, did you catch that? His name, his very name was called the Word of God. Jesus identifies himself with this so intensely that he says, you can just call me that. Just call me Bible. It's my name. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's you and me, white and clean, followed him on a white horses. Now out of his mouth 
goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here we see Jesus, okay? And he's coming down and he's got the sword coming out of his mouth, fire coming out of his eyeballs and huge crowns on his head, flying on this white horse with a million billion people behind him. He's coming out, such a glorious scene, and he's got his robe hiked up. Remember we looked about, uh, uh, what do you do with your loins? Girding your loins. He's got his loins girded up, so his thigh is showing right here, because that's what they did when they would go to battle and go to war. And it says he's got a big fat tattoo on his high thigh that says, King of King and Lord of Lords. This is so manly. I can't even hardly just go on. He's awesome. And Jesus is coming down, and he's executing, it says, the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. It means every time something wasn't right, every time someone says, God, this is not okay, every time someone was hurt, every time someone needed vengeance, this is him executing that vengeance now. Yes, you will get your vengeance. They will get theirs. It is going to go down, and I'm going to bring it. So he's bringing the pain. And then verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and all those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast, as the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So you literally have everyone in the world is like, wow, here's Jesus coming down. Let's submit to him. No. They're like, we hate you. You want to rule us? We hate you. And they all rebel against him, and they all want to fight him. And so verse 20, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. Maybe you really love this image of Jesus. It's manly, powerful, glorious, and wonderful. You know, the word of God no longer confined to pages, but revealed in bodily form to be to the whole world, you know, finally respected and honored, honored for what it is, and it is God himself. It is all of him, his personality, his power, right now confined to pages in the future bodily Jesus himself on this earth. It's going to be awesome. But what about the Jesus we all love? From the, from the cartoons we watched growing up and from the journeys through the Gospels that we've taken together, looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what about that Jesus? He doesn't seem like much of a warrior. He seems kind of gentle and meek. Is it the same guy? Are we really talking about the same guy? I, I want to show you this, this thing from Zechariah chapter 1. There's this, this prophecy. Okay, and I, I'm going to show it to you, and then we're going to tie it into something in the gospel. So this is where you put on your thinking caps, and I really want you to, to, to see this. Okay, it's, he says in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 18, Zechariah is seeing these crazy visions. He was a crazy prophet who saw crazy visions, and they were all from God, and they meant different things for the nation of Israel. But here he says, then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns, Four horns. So he sees, he's getting this vision, and there's these horns. Horns are like the, the pride of a bull is his horns. It's, it speaks of invincibility. So there's this invincible challenge, these four horns. And, he's, and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Okay, so these four horns, these four powerful things. They represent for us Babylon, Greece, Rome, and the Medo-Persian Empire, who Daniel prophesied about. But this, this is basically all the world's power. Everything the world has to offer, the best the world has to offer, the, what we go out this door and what we have to face when we go out there. The world, the best of the world, its challenges, all that it has, how invincible it seems. How can we save every person in this neighborhood? Oh, it seems so hard. It seems so difficult. 
Seems so challenging. Because they're influenced by these horns, these, this world. They got these horns. They're, they're invincible. But look what it says. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Four craftsmen. These are the horns. Well, I'm sorry. And I said, what are these coming to do? So he said to me, these are the horns that scattered Judah so no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them and cast out the horns of the nations that lifted their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So it says the craftsmen were coming to terrify the horns. This is awesome. The word craftsmen in Hebrew is also translated carpenter. A carpenter. And there's another figurative meaning. Well, have you ever been scared of a carpenter? Have you ever thought, oh my gosh, I'm not going to walk down that dark alley with those carpenters? It never goes that way. That's not in our mind. But in the Hebrew, in the figurative language that is saying, the word craftsman, they thought of a guy who could bend metal and and could, with fire, heat it up, and he really um, destroyed the form that metal was in and reshaped it into a better form or wood. And, and so it came to mean over time, a craftsman or a carpenter came to mean one who is skillful to destroy. One who is skillful to destroy. So check this out. In the Old Testament, the word carpenter or craftsman was symbolic for a warrior, someone skillful to destroy. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, we have this really awesome story. And when I, when I just read that in Zechariah, okay, I'm starting to get it, all right? And, and I get to Mark chapter 6, and he says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country. This is Jesus, all right? And his disciples followed him. So he's been ministering. He's been going around. He's been healing people. He's been doing wonderful miracles and things. He's been showing himself to be the Messiah. He's, he's all-powerful, okay? And he goes, it says, to his own country, where he's from, which is Nazareth, up north of Galilee there. He goes there in verse 2. And, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, which is kind of interesting. They just allow, this guy just steps up and says, I, I, I'm here to teach you guys. And they're all, what? We have a rabbi. You know, and, and it wasn't uncommon for a, a traveling rabbi to come and teach when he showed up. But still, they're like, we know you, Jesus. Up until just a little while ago, like a few months ago, you lived here with your mom and your brothers, and you were a carpenter. Hmm. And he began to teach. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Wow, they said. They listen to Jesus talk, and they say, Wow, this is so powerful. Where did this come from? He speaks, and it's like a sword. Why? Because it's Jesus, and his word is a sword. They, they couldn't see it. They don't see it like we saw it in Revelation where it's flaming and fires and all this stuff. But it was still his word being spoken. It was still cutting them to the heart. And they're saying such power. He speaks it's like a sword. He's like a ninja with his mouth. He's amazing. It's like a sword. But he's, he's just a plain old guy, right? It's just Bubba Jesus that lived down the street from me. And they said in verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there, except that he's laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of unbelief. So what I'm seeing here is that Jesus was a carpenter throughout the 30 years of his life on purpose. It wasn't just an accident. And when I, when I think back to the stories in Sunday school, I don't ever remember anyone saying, why was Jesus a carpenter? 
But I believe he was a carpenter for, to fulfill prophecy, that he would be the one who would be skillful to destroy with the words of his mouth, that he could break down walls in people's hearts like no one else, and he could craft them into something of his working. You know, he, he was skillful to destroy the works the enemy was doing. But all that skill in Nazareth on this day, all that skill, all that power was wasted. Why? Because they didn't believe and they didn't have faith. They would not humble themselves but stood in their pride. And so you know what his word did to them? Instead of crafting something awesome for the Lord, it cut them and it would judge them. They would see what kind of warrior he would be. When they will be judged by him, they'll see that. So it says, they, Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching, and he called his twelve to himself, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. Now this is where it gets totally awesome because I feel like Jesus is just saying, hmm, you don't believe in my power? You don't believe that I'm a, a warrior to be feared? You don't feared? You don't believe that I'm skillful to destroy? Here, I'll show you what kind of warrior I am. I'll give my words to these little peons I got following me, and they're going to go kick everyone's butt spiritually. I'm going to go to war. I'm going to fight. I'm going to go demonstrate the power of just my word. Evil spirits go throughout the whole world to try to deceive and destroy many people, but my word has power over them. And when you go out with my word, you can overcome them all, is what he told his little disciples on that day. And it's exactly his word to us today. When you go out with the word and you bring the word into people's lives, you have power over all the evil in their life. Why? Because it's his word. When we choose to take up the word, we are a warrior with infinite power because we carry the word of Jesus Christ, who is the very embodiment of power and glory. It's all contained here. Accuracy and truth and wisdom and resources, love and grace, all just packed into these words. So a call goes out today to pick up your Bible, read it every day, study it, listen to it on your phones, your MP3 players, memorize it, repent when you listen to it. Let the Word of God judge you. Let it cut you. Pick up your sword. Take it everywhere. Read it. Speak it. Love it. Cherish it. Its effect on your own life will be blessing while power and influence will be shown to the world. We're going to close with this psalm. In Psalm 149, we're just going to read verse 6, just one verse. But I love it, and it's going to kind of lead us forth from here. With our Bibles in our hands, and with the Spirit in our hearts, let's all stand as we read this last verse. And we're just going to close in a song. And So Psalm 149, verse 6 says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. That's what he wants us to be today. That's what he wants it's the sword of the Spirit that he's given us. And he says, don't drop it out of your hand. Don't even put this down. Let it be there all the time. So I really encourage you guys this week to check out the anchor groups. The questions will go a little bit deeper. They'll be challenging. You're going to talk about the Word of God and its power. You're going to talk a lot about it. It's going to be awesome. You'll be challenged by some of the questions that ask you, are you picking up the sword of the Spirit like you should be? It'll be really good for you to, to work through that in your anchor groups this week. So if you need more information on that, please check with us afterwards. But all that to say, let's end now with the high praises of God in our mouth 
and the sword, a two-edged sword in our hand, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you with the high praises of God. Whatever that means, Lord, we offer them to you. We give you what you have given us, which is our very breath, our heartbeats, our, our blood beats for you. Everything inside us is for you. And Jesus, your word, God, is so powerful, it's so fruitful, it's so wonderful in our lives. And Lord, we have all shrunk back at times in our life. And when, when the word of God has, has faded from our memory or, or as, as the front thing on our mind, uh, Lord, we have, we have tried to maybe go out in the flesh and we've been beaten back by the enemy. But Lord, I pray just a wave of repentance and a wave of valuing your word would come over us. And we would worship you, the God of the word. Your name who is the word of God. Jesus, we see a glimpse of your glory through the book of Revelation and how, it, how powerful and wonderful it is when you speak. How, how no one can resist your words, and I know that my heart has not resisted your words as well. But you cut me, and you saved me, and then you laid sins upon the block, and you, you killed them as well in my life, and you still are doing that on a daily basis. So Lord, we praise you, and we pray, God, that you would be doing a powerful work. And if today is a day that you have never known Jesus as your Savior, and you don't haven't yet made that decision to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, then now is the time, now is the day to call upon him for salvation and say, God, I need you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you loved me enough to be my sacrifice, to be my substitute when I could not pay my own debt. And I ask for your forgiveness and I pray you would begin a work by your spirit of changing me into a godly man or woman. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.